The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go unto Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord shall set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but no one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, And let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in the sores of man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon their magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, on yourself, and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send... Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all of the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all of the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I am my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the ember were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. I think we're on the, the eighth or ninth week here of this sermon series. And the book of Exodus is a story, uh, God's story of, of deliverance. He's, he's chosen a people. He's chosen Israel to deliver them while at the same time he is judging Egypt. And so far what we've seen is, is the circumstance of Israel where they, they've been for 400 years under cruel Egyptian slavery, cruel Egyptian slavery. And God has heard their moaning, he's heard their cries, and he has raised up a man named Moses to come back to Pharaoh and demand that his people be given back to him. And so we've seen this pattern over the last two chapters, this pattern where Moses goes before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses, and then God, in an act of judgment, brings upon a plague. And through this whole, this pattern, as it keeps repeating and repeating, one of the things that, that Moses is making very clear as he's gone back and he has penned the, the story of Exodus for us, he's been putting a spotlight on Pharaoh's heart. It's really hard to miss it. When you read through these chapters, it's really hard to miss the significance of Pharaoh's heart. And so this week, as we continue through chapter 9, what we're going to see is some more characteristics or more symptoms of Pharaoh's hard heart, which Justin spent a great deal of last week talking on. But something new is going to come up. This text, we're going to see that not only did Pharaoh harden his heart, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart as well. And so what this does, it brings to our attention maybe one of the biggest mysteries of the Christian faith, why God shows mercy to some while judging others. And so it's with that question in the back of our mind that we're going to wade through Exodus 9. So here we go, verse 1. We'll see the pattern continue. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Now these words right here, every time you hear this phrase, please know these are fighting words. Right? This isn't just a, a, a measly, oh, come on, please let my people go. These are fighting words. God, Israel are, is God's people, and he is demanding that they be given back. But Pharaoh 
He's convinced that he is a God himself and that he needs worshipers and servers, servants to um, fill out his desires. So he refuses to return to God what is his. And so God wages war here. Not, not a bring your army in and I'll cast down your army sort of war, but a spiritual war. It's a war for worship. For hundreds of years now, the Israelites have been forced under Egyptian servanthood or slavery. They've been made to adopt sort of the worldview of the Egyptians. Back in Exodus 8, 26, we were told that it was abominable for the Israelites to worship God and offer sacrifices. It was abominable for them to serve God while they were under Pharaoh, so much so that if they did so, they could be stoned. But here God is reclaiming his people. He's bringing them back to himself, and yet Pharaoh resists. And so to Pharaoh's rebellion, God responds and unleashes judgment upon him through these flags. First it was the Nile turned into blood. Then there were a ridiculous amount of frogs that kind of went everywhere. And then it was gnats. And then there were fly swarms of flies everywhere. And now God is going to wipe out all of Pharaoh's livestock that is out in the field. But this time, it, it's a little bit different. This time, God, even in his judgment, he shows his grace. He's gracious in judgment to give Pharaoh a warning in verses 2 and 3. Take a look. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold on to them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord, okay, right there, skip the first five here. And the Lord set a time, okay, so God sets a countdown clock. The Lord set a time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. See, even in God's judgment, he's being gracious with Pharaoh. He's giving him ample opportunities to respond appropriately. And you would think at this point that Pharaoh would perhaps, knowing that there's a countdown timer going on, knowing that there's this severe plague about to hit, you would think that Pharaoh maybe would, would swallow his pride a little bit and go to Pharaoh and say, hey, or go to, go to Moses and say, hey, could you maybe just hold back on this one a little bit? You'd think that there would be some sort of petition happening, but instead Pharaoh is, is quiet. There's no fear in him. There's no fear of the Lord in him. There's no sense of urgency. Even though he's already seen God do wondrous things through Moses, Pharaoh is not inclined to take God seriously, and that is a huge mistake. See, this fits into one of the symptoms of the hard heart that Pastor Justin highlighted last Sunday. Do you remember on the second plague when the frogs were everywhere? Um, Pharaoh calls Moses back. He take these frogs away. Moses says, okay, when do you want it to happen? Pharaoh's like, well, I got time. How about tomorrow? Right? It, it doesn't make sense. Why wait until tomorrow to remove these swarms of frogs? And the same thing is going on here, except this time God is saying, I'm giving you until tomorrow to change the direction and the destination of your life. This is just another manifestation of the same characteristic of a hard heart. A hard heart senses no urgency. So you can tell someone with a hard heart that there are going to be consequences. There are going to be consequences for their sin, but, but they tend to downplay the severity of the situation. Or they lack the sense of urgency, which only comes from a right fear of the Lord. And I'm not talking like some sort of uh, fear, like creepy Halloween, spooky type of fear. I'm talking like a, a fear, an understanding of who God is and what he is capable of doing. 
Now, for some of us, I hope, I hope Pharaoh is just a beacon, a, a warning beacon saying, watch out. Watch your heart. Look out for these things. You may have been confronted in your sin, maybe multiple times, but you still are convinced that you can carry on with it. You, you've disregarded a call to repentance and, and friends. If that's you, that is a, a very dangerous place to be. See, the Lord has been gracious to give you today. He's given you this day, a day to look at the cross and to see that Jesus went under the heavy hand of God for you so you wouldn't have to. So don't, don't wait until tomorrow comes. It might not come or it might come with haste. See, the Lord has set a day. They will, he, will, he will judge. So, so take heed. Learn from Pharaoh's mistake here. See, Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't, doesn't have any sense of urgency, and it does not go well for him. Moses says if a plague is coming, it will hit all the livestock in the field, but God will make a distinction between the livestock of Egypt and of Israel so that no animal of, of Israel property will perish. Look at verses, verse 4 here. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die, verse 6. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of Egypt died, but not one, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. See, God, God did what he said he was going to do. And as random as these plagues might seem, God is doing something specific here. He's, he's attacking Egyptian gods. And thus, in attacking Egyptian gods, he's, he's attacking the Egyptian worldview. With every plague, Yahweh is showing that these so-called Egyptian gods are, are nothing compared to him. See, the way that he does this is by humiliating some of the most important gods of Egyptian religion by attacking the image that they bear. For example, Hathor, an Egyptian goddess, she was depicted with the horns of a bull. She was considered the goddess of love and beauty, motherhood and fertility. And hear this, one of her functions was to protect Pharaoh. Okay, so God attacks this livestock, the image of a cow, What's that mean about Hathor? She's, she failed at her job to protect Pharaoh. Or there's Apis. Apis was the most important of all the sacred animals in Egypt. Took the form of a bull, and, and Apis was considered to be an intermediary between the all-powerful God and humans. Okay, and so here, check this out. In striking down the livestock, God says that your intermediary, the one that you have to go between the all-powerful God and yourself is not sufficient for the job that you've designated it for. For God to destroy the image of livestock would have been a humiliation to these so-called gods. And it would have been humiliating for Pharaoh. When he woke up, he'd look out at his palace and he would see livestock throughout all the fields just flopped over. These sacred animals that they, they worshipped and they adored are now rotting. See, and the irony of this is that the Egyptians, while they held their cows or livestock stock so sacred, they've all perished, but the, Egypt, or the Israelites, their livestock is still intact. It's not one has perished. See, and Pharaoh sees this or he hears of this, and verse 7 here he says, 
And Pharaoh sent, because he heard of it, he didn't really believe it, so he sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Again, we see the cycle, Pharaoh's heart hardening, and he did not let the people go. See, Pharaoh is surprised at what happens. He doesn't actually believe it, so he sends out fact finders to research for him. So in this next pl- plague, while Pharaoh is in a state of overall disbelief, God is going to do the next plague right in front of his face. Take a look at, at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in, out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in the sores of man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of their boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So here is another symptom to observe about Pharaoh's hard heart. When there is ample evidence, when there's ample evidence of God's working, there's a refusal to believe. See, Pharaoh has seen incredible things, incredible, wondrous miracles that God has done through, through Moses, some that even his dark magicians couldn't recreate, let alone combat, yet he still doesn't believe. See, the evidence is right there in front of his face, but his heart is hard, so hard that he can't take it in. Now, I've, last week and, and just recently, we, we spoke about those, just those warning signs of a hard heart for us to kind of keep an eye on. But, but I just want to make this comment. For people, people who are, are being faithful and interacting with people who seem to be hard-hearted, just, just take this. No matter how much evidence is put before someone, no matter how strong your apologetics are, no matter how clear your gospel presentation is, there are some people who are hard-hearted and they will be unaffected by such evidence. Okay, now here, here's what I would say to you. Your job is, we don't recoil from that. We don't step back, oh, well, we tried. Our job is to stand into that, to lean into that, to be a faithful witness, to speak truth in love and pray on their behalf that God would soften their heart. See, God is powerful enough to soften the hardest of hearts, and so we go to him. When we think that it's our job to do that, we start stepping on the toes of the Holy Spirit. So know that. Just know that that's out there. God is still working even when it doesn't seem like he is. Just like the death of the Egyptian livestock was, this was an attack on some of the Egyptian gods. The boils that covered the Egyptians were an attack specifically on the Egyptian goddess Isis, who was the queen of the gods and the goddess of health and wisdom. So by by all of the Egyptians being covered from foot to head and boils like Isis looks like a huge failure. So much so, so much so that, check this out. So in the, in the Egyptians being covered in boils, that makes them unworthy of worshiping. They're unable to approach their Egyptian gods, okay? They've been unclean. The Egyptians were clean freaks. 
more than any other, any other culture of that time. They were clean freaks, and so for them to be covered in boils would be to, to, uh, to, to keep them, to bar them from, from worshiping their gods. Not only an attack on the Egyptian gods, but a, a judgment upon the magicians and the, re, the religious leaders because they are unable to stand before Moses. And this is both physically, their, their sores are physically, but it also has some spiritual implications. It points to one day where we'll have to stand before God and give an account. And for those who put their faith in Christ, they'll be able to, to point to Jesus and say, this is the only reason why I, I can be confident in where I stand with you. And for others who don't have faith in Christ, they won't have anything to stand on. And so this is what's pointing forward to. The Egyptian magicians cannot stand before God or stand before Moses. And the ironic thing about this, that throwing ashes into the air would have been a, a common gesture that Egyptian pri priests would have made as a sign of blessing among their people. But now, by Moses taking the soot from the kiln and throwing it up in the air, it is a, a sign of judgment upon Egyptians. See, God is, is stopping. He's barring. He's preventing the Egyptians from continuing in their idol worship. And this is perhaps, this is perhaps one of the greatest, most gracious things that God can do to interfere with our idol worship, right? It might seem like God is taking some, something from us, trying to hold us back from something, but really it's his grace keeping us from, from worshiping demonic idols. See, but this doesn't, even with the boils, this doesn't stop Pharaoh, this doesn't stop the Egyptians from continuing to worship their false gods. They do not relent in their idol worship. And Pharaoh's heart continues to grow harder and harder. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. See, another symptom of a hard heart and, and, and this seems pretty obvious is that you do not listen to God. Pharaoh does not listen to Moses. With all the warnings, with all the conf confrontation, a hard heart still persists on its own way. See, without God intervening, our hard heart will lead to un our unraveling, our undoing. In fact, these plagues in chapter 9 give us a terrifying visual of the consequences of our hard heart. If you just big picture, what's happening? Death, misery, and the next plague, mass destruction. In his hardness of heart, Pharaoh continues to double down on his hard heart, and it just grows harder and harder. But before we move to the next plague, there's, there's something that's different about this part right here. Hopefully a red flag went up, because in the past, it's Pharaoh hardened his heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But this time, verse 12 tells us, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Underline that. We're going to come back to that, okay? Moving on to the seventh plague, the pattern repeats again. Let my people go, verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me, fighting words again. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Jump down to verse 18. 
Behold, about this time tomorrow I, cause, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field to a safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and that is not brought home will die when the hail falls upon them. See, again, God is being gracious. Hey, hail is coming. Seek shelter. It's not going to go well for you if you do not heed my words. See, this is, this is when you think about it, well, how is this gracious? God, it just seems like God is punishing them. How can that be gracious? Verse 15 tells us why. Because God has the right to wipe them off the face of the earth. For by now I could have put you I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. That would have been right for God to do. It would have been just if God would have done that, but God is patient and gracious toward them. And this time we see something interesting because in verses 20, 21, oh man, that's popping, huh? Because this time in verses 20 and 21, there are Egyptians that actually listen. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now, if this was out of faith, I, I, think, I think Moses tells us later on that this is not out of genuine faith. It's a matter of saving face or protecting their assets. But for some reason, some listen to God while others refuse to listen. Those who feared the word of the Lord sought out shelter, while others will lose more of their livestock. Take a look at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out, his hand, stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in, the land, in all the land of Egypt since it had became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. See, again, God brings forth judgment only upon the Egyptians. For some reason, he spares the Israelites. And another attack on Egyptian gods. Nut, the sky god, would have been under attack. Set, the storm god, would have been under attack. Orisus, the protector of the crops. All of these gods would have been marked as failures in comparison to Yahweh. See, it's, it's, it's not just that these... These gods are being attacked, but the livelihood of Egyptians are being attacked as well. Their, their crops, their livestock has suffered. The wealth of the Egyptians is decreasing as time progresses. Before it was livestock, now crops are ruined, and even some men and the remaining livestock that were out in the field are killed. And we're told the only thing that, that is spared in verse 31 and 32 is, is the wheat and the emmer because they were slow in coming out of the ground that year. And just, just think about this. Again, God's grace and judgment. Who do you think it was that delayed the crops from coming up that year? God is even gracious in his judgment. 
And this judgment, this, this plague has future implications. While the other plagues have come and gone, now there are ramifications for this judgment. Their crop supply has been depleted. Their livestock has been depleted. Their wealth is depleted. Families are now having burial services for their loved ones. See, and as we see the plagues continue, the consequences of rebellion intensify. It only gets worse from here. It seems like perhaps Pharaoh has had enough. You would hope. You would hope. First, the livestock dies, Egyptians get boils, now crops, now animals out in the field are destroyed. I'm hoping Pharaoh's going to throw in the white flag here. It seems like it, verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. This is, this is important. The first time that that word has been thrown in here in accordance with Pharaoh's hard heart, this time Moses said, I, or Pharaoh has said, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. To plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. See, for the first time, this is significant, for the first time, Pharaoh admits that he is in the wrong. He has sinned. He admits it, he confesses it, but he doesn't repent. He directs his confession toward Moses, but not to God. And this is, this is another thing, another characteristic, another symptom of a hard heart. Sure, you can say, yeah, I, I sinned. But there's a refusal to go before God and to repent, to turn from that sin. I, I think we see this often in mission communities, living in fight clubs together. As we live in community, we love our brothers and sisters enough to confront them in their sin. Right. And, hey, hey, brother, you are, you are failing at loving your wife well. God is calling you to something better. And they'll be, yeah, sure, man, I, I see how I've sinned. There's no change. There's no real repentance. Repent means to take it before God, to confess and to turn from it. See, and so Moses, he sees through this, this confession, this false repentance of Pharaoh. He sees through it in verse 30. He says, but as for you and your servants, he's talking to Pharaoh, but for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. See, and, and this proves to be true. Moses' assessment is correct because Pharaoh changes his mind yet again. Look at verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. And the thunder, just think about this for a minute. Okay, Moses was called into Pharaoh. So the, th the, the thunder, the lightning, the hail is coming down. Moses is called to come to Pharaoh. And I just imagine Moses walking through Egypt. I don't know if this is accurate. I just where my imagination goes. But Moses walking through Egypt, lightning, thunder, hail, and there's just protection around him. You see that the hail's still going on. Pharaoh calls Moses in. And he says, I'll go out and I'll, I'll call it off. So he went out of the city, stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. 
And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. When Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So now Pharaoh is not only hardening his heart, but the people of Egypt, we see that they are hardening their hearts as well. It's scary to see the cycle of Pharaoh, the Egyptians, this hard heart. See, another symptom of a hard heart is that when we, when we, perceive that there is relief coming, when, when there has been relent from the consequences of sin, right? just as we seem to be on the brink of, of re- truly repenting, turning around and, and trusting God, we go right back to our sinful ways. That's, that's what a hard heart does. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. It says Pharaoh. Seems like he's moving away and comes right back to it. But here's the thing. Pharaoh doesn't repent because he is unable to repent. See, true repentance, true heart change, going to, a heart that's going towards sinful things, repentance means turning the opposite direction, moving toward God. See, this is a gift from God. You cannot muster this up in your own will. You cannot generate it yourself. See, it's not just the ability to admit that you did wrong. It's the ability to confess before God and to turn from that. So this brings up this question that we started out with. Why would God give some repentance and not others? See, why would God give Pharaoh a hard heart? Right, remember that verse 12? So God, the Lord God, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. See, the reason why Pharaoh is, is unable to, uh, to repent is two, twofold. We're told throughout this. One is that Pharaoh is hardening his heart. He's doing it himself. But two, as of verse 12, we're told that God is hardening his heart. See, both of these statements are true, but, but the question is, which one came first? Did Pharaoh harden his heart toward God first and then God came along and then sealed it, solidified that? See, some scholars argue that that's the case, that that God did not harden Pharaoh's heart until after Pharaoh hardened himself. See, when God hardened Pharaoh, and they say, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was simply confirming the decision that Pharaoh had already made. Thus, the moral of the story is God hardens whoever's, God hardens those who hardens themselves. But that's not accurate. That's not biblically accurate. That's not accurate with the story, the progression of Exodus, and that's not accurate in what we learn throughout the rest of Scripture. See, back in Exodus 4.21, before, before Moses even went back to Egypt, God told him, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let my people go. Scripture is telling us that God is ultimately the one who is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart. Philip Ryken says it like this, while it is true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the deeper truth is that even this was part of God's sovereign plan. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not God's response to Pharaoh, but his purpose for Pharaoh. See, this is scary a little bit, right? I think so. 
See, what we've just come face to face with is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine that says before the foundations of the world, God chooses who will be rescued from sin through faith and thus undeservingly be saved and who will not be rescued from sin and deservingly perish. This is a doctrine that it's, it's so easy for our hearts in our misunderstanding of it to grow hard, to push back on it. But I, I, if we do that, we miss out on some of the most glorious truths about God. It might be confusing for us. It might make us uncomfortable because, because this doctrine is very hard to understand. It acknowledges there's a paradox here, not a contradiction, a paradox between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Perhaps there's no, there, perhaps there's no other doctrine that raises more questions than the Bible offers answers. So it's wise to say that there is mystery here. It's more, very important for us to make that note because we put ourselves in da- dangerous territory when we claim clarity when there is mystery. See, but the doctrine of election is not all mystery. Parts of it are mysterious. Parts of it we don't understand, but s- Scripture speaks clearly about parts of it. And so we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so it just happens that the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Romans and perhaps the most lengthy discourse on the doctrine of elections which happens between chapters 8 and chapters 11. He quotes from this passage in Exodus and another passage in Exodus in Romans chapter 9. So if you want to flip there with me. I'll get there. Check out this new Bible that I got. Isn't that fancy? Isn't that great? I did have a real... uh, tough decision to make make between using this Bible and my wife gave me a Bible for Christmas a couple years back that I really hold dear to my heart, but I decided to go with this one today. Sorry, that was a digression. Here we go. Romans 9, verse 11. Though they, and they're talking about Jacob and Esau here, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, so that they're, at this point, they've done nothing, neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Okay, this is important right here. The doctrine of election is not some sort of uh, newly created uh, doctrine in the New Testament that Paul kind of creates. John Calvin did not create this, this doctrine here. This is a doctrine that has been at play since Genesis. The, the purpose of God's election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. See, this is monergistic. This means that God is the one that's doing the work of calling, and it is not at all dependent upon the works of anyone. It is not synergistic, where, where God does uh, uh, 80% and man does 20%. This is monergistic. God does it all. He, according to his will, predestines. He chooses who will be his. And so we can say that that Pharaoh's rebellion and his hard heart is not because of his doing. It is because God has planned it to be that way. And likewise, on the, on the, the, the verse side here is Israel's rescue is not because of their faithfulness. Because if you actually assess Israel, they have been 
wildly unfaithful up to this point, and they'll continue to be wildly unfaithful as the rest of the Old Testament progresses. But it's only on the account of God, his plan, and his will that they be rescued. God is doing it according to his own will, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Keep going, verse 12. She was told, the older will so the younger, and it is written, Jacob I loved, this is God speaking, but Esau I hated. See, this, this is, this is a passage that ruffles our feathers. How, how if God is a loving God, how can he, he love some and, and say that he hates others? See, it, it doesn't seem fair. Right? We get caught up on that. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. But Paul, anticipating your pushback, he continues writing. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is, he's saying, is, is God unjust for choosing some and not others? By no means. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. We'll see that coming up in Exodus 33. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, here's that quote, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. To properly understand the doctrine of election, we must understand, first of all, that God always does what is good, right, and perfect. He's incapable of justice. It's against his very nature. So the only way that we can make sense of this is to see that everyone, every single person is equally undeserving. No one deserves God's love or mercy. Not a, human, not a single human in all space and all time has earned God's love. Everyone has come up completely short. See, Jacob was no more deserving of God's mercy than Esau, nor was Israel more deserving of God's grace than Pharaoh. See, the, the doctrine of election, I think perhaps maybe the scariest part for us to really grasp, it tells us something about ourselves. It can be a, a hard pill to swallow. It says, it says that we're just like Pharaoh. It says that we're cut from the same cloth. Paul continues, Romans 9, verse 20. He's using a, a potter analogy here as, as the clay is spinning on the potter's wheel. He says, but who, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Look at that, out of the same lump lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. This tells me right here that I am no better than Pharaoh. You are no better than Pharaoh. We have the same tendencies of a hard heart. There are times where we don't listen to God. There are times where we, like a dog, returns the vomit, go back to our sin and our, our idolatry. There are times where we are painfully slow to repent, 
right? Maybe we confess with our mouth, but our heart's not in it. See, the doctrine of election tells me that apart from God's grace, my heart and your heart is just like Pharaoh's. And we all deserve what Pharaoh got. We deserve death, misery, and destruction because of that. See, that was what's waiting for us. That's what's waiting for Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness. And that's what was waiting for us before God intervened. See, we deserve judgment. We deserve to be dismissed. We deserve to be judged, and the scale certainly would not tip in our favor. See, but this is what makes the doctrine of election or the gospel so beautiful that even the worst sinner, even the person with the, the longest track record, the greatest person in rebellion, the person with the hardest heart can be saved simply because it was God's will and good pleasure to do so. So we all deserve hell. But God gives us heaven because he is gracious, not because of anything we have done, but because of his mercy. Now still, there's something to wrestle with here. Why? This question, why? Why would, why would God, still, why would God choose some and not others? What, what makes the difference? And, and honestly, that's part of where the mystery lies. But Exodus verses 14 and 16 offer us a couple of reasons. If you want to flip back, I got to find it. Exodus 9, 14. It said, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people. Here it is. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. See, God is showing us through this, by choosing some and, and dismissing others, that there is none like him in all the earth. No one, no false god can do what God can do. No one has the power to raise someone up and then bring them low. No one has the power to take a hard heart and make it soft but God. And verse 16 gives us another. For this purpose, here we go, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Yahweh, his name is so great. His mercy is so sweet that his name will be known throughout all the earth. And that's true as, as the Egyptians are, they exodus and they develop themselves. There is this awareness among the world of, who God is, who God's people, and what he's done to deliver them. Romans, going back to Romans 9, sorry to keep flippy floppy on you, but Romans 9 builds this out a little bit more for us. Verse 22. What if, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what if God has endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
and who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. See, this is, this is the gospel in the book of Exodus where God mercifully saves undeserving people from judgment. The people who are not his people are now his people. He has called them out. And what we see ultimately is that God does this today with us. He calls us out of a world of darkness into his marvelous light through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to be everything that we couldn't be to take the punishment for everything that we are. In his mercy, he sent Jesus to the cross, and by his power, he raised him from the dead so that we could have a new heart, a new life devoted to serving Yahweh. Now, if this is, this, this path, these chapters are kind of heavy as God is judging Exodus. And if you are, if you would say that you aren't a Christian, I want to extend an invitation to you. If you, if you feel your need for a Savior, if you, if you know that you are just like Pharaoh, that you need delivered. You don't need to be a better person so God will accept you. You don't need to to become better. (laughs) See, God only chooses undeserving people. So if the Spirit is moving in your heart, would would you trust in Christ? Would you trust that God is satisfied with you? He has called you out because of Christ's work. So you don't even need to understand all of this talk about the doctrine of election. All you need to do is to trust Jesus and look at him on the cross, to see him taking the place for your sins, forgiving you so that you could have a new life in him. See, for Christians who, who know you have been called out, that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, be reminded that you don't deserve the gospel. And God is so gracious to give it to you. I have a hard time talking about election and the glorious grace of Christ without going to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to read this for you. I'm not going to unpack it, but I just want to leave it out there, and then I've got a couple of closing points here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, this is a loving act that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you, are, if you belong to Christ, God will one day unite us with him for good. I just want to leave you with three closing thoughts here. Application, closing thoughts. 
This is, a big, this is a big doctrine. This is not just something that stays up in our head. This is a doctrine that is meant to work its way down into our heart, into our hands, and produce something in us. The first thing here is that if you actually believe the doctrine of election, it makes you thankful. Because you see that you are completely undeserving of God's grace, you respond in thanksgiving and in worship. That's the first thing that it cultivates in us. Just as Israel is called out of Egypt to serve God, we too are pulled out of sin to worship and to serve God. It makes us thankful. And in the same vein, the doctrine of election must make you humble. You cannot believe the doctrine of election and be like, oh, look at me, I, I'm God's chosen. Must have done something right. No. No, the doctrine of election tells you that you did nothing right. That God in his grace pulled you into his family. So we are not proud. We are not arrogant. We are humble. See, the gospel says that you are so unredeemable in yourself that Jesus had to shed his blood in order to rescue you. That produces humility. See, and while being humble, last thing as we're humble, we're also unashamedly confident in the work of Christ that we confidently proclaim the gospel as we live on mission. Okay, one of the defeater beliefs, oh, if I believe the, the doctrine of election that God has already chosen who he's going to adopt and who he's not, then what, why should I evangelize? But that's not the case at all. See, the doctrine of election tells us that there are lost sheep out there beyond these walls. And they know the good shepherd's voice. When they hear it, they will respond to it. And so we go forth from here knowing that God's people, that there are God's people out there that need to be grafted into his family, into the church. And so we have confidence and mission. When we keep the gospel, right, when we keep, keep this thought that we are saved by grace according to the will of God and not by anything that we have done, when we keep the gospel at the forefront of our mind, the Holy Spirit produces these things in us. So if you need to grow in thankfulness, if you need to grow in humility, if you need to become a better missionary, all you need to do is remember what Christ has done for you in the gospel, Let's pray. Father, I pray for the hearts of the people this morning who maybe ruffle their feathers at the talk of the doctrine of election and how you choose some and dismiss others. I pray, Father, that there would be a softening of their heart, a, a receptivity to this doctrine that you are, are gloriously gracious toward us that it would have been right for you, just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to bring down your heavy hand upon us and wipe us from the face of the earth. But in your grace, you chose people to belong to you when they could not choose you themselves. So, Father, I'm praying that through the preaching of this word of Christ, through the gospel, would you rescue sinners from pun the punishment of sin, namely death, misery, and destruction, so that we may know your glorious grace and proclaim it throughout the earth and that our city would be saturated with gospel people. Father, we pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be known 
to all places. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.